Now, welcome to another inspiring edition of Sound Insight with Dr. Tom Curran. Good morning. Welcome to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. It's great to be with you today. It is the feast of St. Alphonsus Liguori, the founder of the Redemptorists, one of the most prolific authors in the history of the church, and someone who highly valued regular confession. So today we're going to continue on with our series. This is part three in my series on confession, five sentences that will heal your life. I hope and pray that it's a blessing to you and that it fosters a refreshed and even renewed experience of confession. Hey, this is Dr. Tom Curran, the host of Sound Insight, but also a realtor serving wonderful folks like you in the state of Washington and in Idaho. I've had the privilege and pleasure of helping dozens of families in the last two and a half years discern and find a a strategy, a path, and a plan to help their families find a whole new life in eastern Washington and northern Idaho. If I could be of service to you in that, I would love to. Please reach out, drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Okay, back to Sound Insight. What is contrition? Contrition is the God-given remedy to crush our hardened hearts. Did you hear that? It's the God-given remedy to crush our hardened hearts. A heart that refuses to resist or refuses to yield to the Holy Spirit needs to be crushed. And contrition does that. But what's the alternative? The alternative is when we're experiencing the pain, I experienced the pain of the kidney stone. It wasn't going to go away. What could I do? Mask the pain. Attempt to deal with the effect without dealing with the cause. Medication. Well, what are the modern forms of medication that attempt to mask the pain of a hardened heart? I wonder how much medication is actually used. I know that people use medication for utterly appropriate purposes, clinically depressed, other uh, psychological, neurological, physiological, genetic conditions where medication is absolutely appropriate and needed, wonderful. But I'm wondering, How much spiritual pain that manifests itself in psychological and emotional senses of emptiness and despair and darkness, people turn to medication to try to deal with spiritual pain. It might mask it, but it won't deal with it. It might attempt to deal with the effect. It's not going to get at the cause. But there are other strategies as well. The two most common, I believe, are, number one, staying busy. Why? If you stay busy, especially if you stay busy in things that have a a, a relative degree of meaning and purpose, projects, you begin to get a sense of fulfillment, satisfaction in your life out of doing something good. I'm doing something, I'm helping people. I'm doing something that's bringing a level of meaning to my life, but it's partial. It's a fragment of meaning. And so it provides a degree of satisfaction for a time, but then it dissipates And the deeper pain is there. So what do I need to do? Stay busy. Stay very busy. Because if I ever actually stopped and quieted myself and listened, what might emerge from the depths? The ache in my heart that's infinite. Why? It's an ache for the one who is infinite. And nothing finite can meet the ache that's infinite. A second strategy, I believe, is... Involving myself in intense experiences, especially those kind of experiences where I can lose myself. So whether that is something like interactive video games, working out at the gym, 
gambling, drugs, drinking, a career, a romantic relationship, or a dozen other alternatives. All of these things have something in common. You can give more and more of yourself over to it. It's the, uh, it, the relational one is very, very common. Why? We're relational beings. And so the, the hunger we have for God is a relational hunger. So I think it's quite natural for us to choose relational strategies to try to fill the relational ache, right? It's the Jerry Maguire cutesy quote, you complete me, right? No, you do not, you know? Uh, only God can complete us. So my simple uh, proposal is that intensity is no replacement for depth. We live in a culture that is a surfacey culture. So if you can turn up the intensity of the experience, then somehow you think you can meet the spiritual profound need for a relationship that's at the dimension of the, of the heart in the deepest core. You can't reach the core by focusing on the surface. And yet our, our world is a world that believes only in surfaces in, in many popular ways. Is this making sense? Okay, so this is, um, you know, deep cries to deep. Deep cries out to deep, Psalm 42, 7. So the ocean of God's love is going to fill that chasm in our hearts so that they will no longer be restless, but will rest. So let's just say this. Knowing how to deal with a hardened heart, this is a big deal. Getting this one right is going to be a fundamentally important thing for us as individuals and for us to hand on in our own families, in our own fundamental relationships. So what's the alternative strategy to dealing with the effects of a hardened heart? Namely, deal with the cause. Don't mask the effects. Crush the cause. Just like I set an appointment to go meet with that specialist who would then find the exact location of that kidney stone so that he could then send focused sound waves to crush into minute particles that kidney stone so it could exit the system. The hardened heart gets crushed through the focused sound waves of the expression of contrition. I am sorry. I am sorry. That's the power of I am sorry. It can crush a hardened heart. Well, obviously, I'm not talking about some magic formula where you just say the words and it happens. And I'm saying something even more than just, oh, you feel sorry for your sins. Though contrition will often have a component that manifests itself at the level of the feelings. It shouldn't be identified merely with the sensation of sorrow. We're integral beings. Spiritual sorrow will manifest in some way in an emotional state, but differently for different people. We'll talk about that in a little bit. What I want to propose to you is, is that if we're going to understand how a contrite person comes before God and says, I'm sorry, it'll involve three levels the level of awareness, the level of attitude, and then the level of action. I'm not making up these three, awareness, attitude, and action. These are Pope John Paul II's proposal, that if we want to effectively bring the truth of our faith into the world as witnesses, it will flow from a fundamental process of learning to see. The truth will shape how I see. In other words, the truth, when it gets implanted in my life, 
when it gets integrated in my life, it'll generate a way of seeing. It'll generate an awareness. How I see shapes how I relate to others. That's my attitude. Any of your kids ever take a, an attitude? Their attitude is how they're relating to you. And that manifests itself in an action. We oftentimes think, oh, let's just start at the level of the actions. No. Actions are traced back to an attitude, which is traced back to how they see. Think about that. It's a very, it's a very important parenting uh, uh, flow to understand. If you want to parent your kids well, don't just focus on their behaviors, but understand the attitude that is displayed in the behavior, but understand even more fully. The attitude is traced back to how they're seeing something, their awareness. So we're going to do that now for, with regards to contrition. Contrition is what? The Catechism defines uh, contrition in paragraph 1451 as the sorrow of my soul and my detestation, my detesting of my sins. Well, how do I have that awareness in my life in such a way that it's going to give birth to a sorrow in my soul and a detesting of my sins and the appropriate attitude that is going to flow from understanding my own sins. And by the way, the attitude is humility. We'll cover that in just a moment. But let's talk first of all about the awareness. And I, I want to make it, uh, this is something that our tradition points out. And again, this is a, really a fundamental point in, in the whole book that I wrote, Confession, Five Sentences That Will Heal Your Life. If you remember, I took the concept of confession and I traced it back to St. Augustine. His book, The Confessions, is this a book that is confessing his own sinfulness or is it confessing God's glory? And the answer is yes, right? These two are connected. Did you just hear that? We're going to dig into that a little bit more fully. That it is when we come into contact with the living God, when we have an awareness of God's majesty, it's going to bear fruit in an awareness of our sinfulness. An awareness of our sinfulness that gives rise to contrition. Now, okay, how does that happen? How do I get that kind of encounter with the majesty of God? Well, the answer is, it's a gift. God gives us the gift of an encounter with God. Now, I want to just give you a sense of how this shows up in scriptures. That when someone comes into contact and, and the, the veil that separates us from the Lord is pulled back just a bit, and we have this sense, this sensitivity, this, this, this enlightenment. When we become enlightened, that we are in the presence of the holy God, the infinitely holy God, that that gives birth in our lives to an awareness of our misery before his majesty. First is Isaiah 6. What happens in Isaiah 6? Isaiah the prophet comes into the temple. Who is in the temple? Whose dwelling place is the temple? The presence of God, right? He comes into the temple. He gets drawn into this encounter with God's presence. Does he have the power to make this happen? No, he doesn't. He doesn't have the power to cause God to show up. He doesn't have the power to be drawn into the very throne room of God and around the throne, hearing the angels cry out, holy, 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 right? But this is what happens. It's given to him as a gift. And he comes into the presence of the holy God 
And what does he end up saying? He says, at the sound of that cry, uh, the uh, holy, 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 all the earth is filled with his glory. Then I said, what? What is, the, what is Isaiah's reaction to this encounter with God's glory? Woe is me. I am doomed, for I am a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's only in the light of God's majesty, God's infinite holiness, that he really can see now. He has an awareness of his own misery. Think Revelation 1, 12 to 16. John is drawn up into the heavens on the Lord's day. And he tries to describe his encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. Okay? Now, I want you to hold on to this description because I'm going to shock you in a minute. All right? Listen to whom, listen to the one whom, uh, who, who uh, John encounters. Who does John encounter? Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And when I turned, I saw one like a son of man, wearing an ankle-length robe with a gold sash around his chest, dressed like a, a Jewish priest. The hair of his head, this is Jesus, the hair of his head was as white as white wool or as snow. And his eyes were like a fiery flame. Jesus, white as white as snow, face white, eyes fiery flame. Are you hearing this? His feet were like polished brass refined in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing water. In his right hand, he held seven stars. A sharp two-edged sword came out of his mouth and his face shone like the sun at its brightest. This is Jesus the risen, glorified Lord Jesus that he encounters. What happens to John when he catches a glimpse? When I caught sight of him, I fell down at his feet as though dead. Wow. The encounter with the glory of God brings about a revelation that literally drains the very life out of John And he falls down in his nothingness, in his absolute, compared to the life of the one he just saw, he's dead. And Jesus then raises him up. But that's what I'm talking about when I say an encounter with God's glory reveals to us our own misery. God's power reveals our poverty. God's immensity reveals our nothingness. That is what I'm talking about. Now, um, Uh, Oh, here's the shocking thing. You want to encounter that Jesus? You want to encounter that Jesus? He's there in the tabernacle. In the Eucharist. That Jesus enters you in communion. That's the Jesus you take in in communion. Now, all of a sudden, if that Jesus lives in you, what kind of brightness of God's holiness, what kind of glory is the Lord wanting to shine through you into this world? Wow, pretty striking stuff. Now, let's add to this revelation of God's majesty, a revelation of God's intimate, personal, fatherly love and care. That's who's meeting you. That's who's revealing himself to you. Now, I want you to think of the story. This will be the last story I'll share from the scriptures. But there's a reason why I'm going to all this trouble, and and you'll understand it in a minute. 
Uh, what happens when the prodigal son uh, uh, comes home to the father? How does he actually get there? Well, in Luke chapter 15, verse 17, says something really critical to understand how conversion occurs, how contrition gets stirred. Luke 15, 17, where is the, set, where is the younger brother? He is in the pigsty. And it says in 15, 17, that he comes to his senses. He literally awakens. He has an awareness. He now has received the gift of an enlightenment. And what does he realize when he comes to his senses? Does he realize that he is in a pigsty of his own making? He's in this miserable condition. Or does he realize that he has a father who loves him? The answer is yes. Are you finally catching on now? Whenever I ask you an either-or question, the right answer is always yes, okay? So that in the, in the reality of, of our relationship with God, he gives us this gift of enlightenment where we realize simultaneously, I'm in a pigsty of my own making. I have been utterly unfaithful to the Father who is utterly faithful and awaits my return. We'll come back to the to the prodigal son story in a little bit. But it's that awareness that will generate an I am sorry, an act of contrition that can crush the hardened heart, that will crush the hardened heart. Okay, well, if this is critical, this is really fundamentally that important, the question is, how do I get me some of that enlightenment? Would you like to know? Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Anyone want to know, how do we have that encounter? Now, be careful what you ask for, because when you get that enlightenment, everything's going to change, right? We're going to go from living in this flat world where we live in this world and God is somehow out there. God will become the living God. And when God becomes the living God, our awareness changes. The way we see life, the way we see everything changes. So be very careful what you're asking for, because you're asking to have your whole world changed. But enlightenment—I uh, should I'm not making it as a, I'm not making it as a threat, but it's a—it's uh, a reality. So um, enlightenment is a gift from God. That means uh, if it's a gift, you can't earn it, but there's something you can do to prepare for it, to dispose yourself for it. Know this: God is ready to give it to you. God wants to give it to you. He's not trying to hide it from you. He wants you to have it even more than you want to receive it. So how do we receive what God is ready to give? Ask, seek, knock. Jesus didn't hide how it is we are to receive what it is the Lord is ready to give us. We clear a space for God's gifts. 
We don't cause them to come, but we ready ourselves to receive what he's prepared to give. This is again, St. Augustine quoted in the Catechism. God wills that our desire should be exercised in prayer, that we may be able to receive what he is prepared to give. Did you hear that? You're not convincing God to give you anything, but through desire, God, I long to meet you. Please reveal your holiness. Lord, show me your face. Reveal your glory to me. Reveal your majesty to me. God, I long to know who you are in all of your glorified risen presence, Jesus. Please, how fervently have we knocked, asked, and sought after that encounter with the risen Lord? How, how much effort and time do we put into seeking his face? I mean, really, what would it be worth to you? What, what is it? Well, how valuable is it to, to know the reality of the living God and his majesty and glory? It's worth everything. And yet, how much effort do we put into trying to exercise that desire, stretching our hearts to receive what he's ready to give? Well, God longs to reveal this to us. Now, I want to propose to you that your awareness of God's majesty and the resulting awareness of your misery will grow gradually. Now, what will happen with this, uh, with this growing awareness? Remember now, what does a way of seeing give rise to? Do you remember? Awareness leads to a new attitude. And the attitude is going to lead to the action of contrition. What's the attitude? What's the way of relating to God once you realize how infinitely holy and faithful and utterly loving he is and how utterly unfaithful and miserable and pitiable and poor and how I am before God? What's the right attitude? Humility. Now, humility is at the heart of contrition. But before I'm going to get into explaining how humility is connected to contrition, I need to distinguish something that the catechism calls in accord with our tradition the difference between contrition and attrition. If contrition is the crushing of the hardened heart, what is attrition? Attrition is associated with sorrow for sins that is not rooted in love. Contrition is rooted in love. Attrition is the sorrow for sins that is rooted in the fear of the consequences of sin. I, lo I loved playing sports growing up. Baseball was one of my favorites. I loved to pitch. Actually, I loved to pitch well. I didn't love to pitch not so well. I remember one time pitching, didn't do so well. And um, uh, the bases were now loaded. I had given up a few runs. And I was facing this next batter, and I was sweating. And I can remember looking over at the bench and seeing my teammates, and then there was the coach looking at me. And the look on this guy's face generated in me attrition. Right? I was fearful of the consequences. If I didn't do well in this next batter, I knew what was going to happen. Consequences. Pulled out of the game. I can remember, though, looking beyond my coach up into the stands, and there I saw my dad's face. And I still remember looking at my dad, and he had this smile on his face, looking at me, and those eyes, and my dad were eyes of love. You know, and I can remember looking at him and just thinking to myself, I wasn't afraid of the consequences of being pulled out of the game if I didn't do well. It was, I love my dad. I want to make my dad proud. I want to do a good job, not because I'm afraid of the consequences if I don't, but because I just love my dad, and I want to be my very best for my dad. Uh, you know, people have asked me when I, when I told this story, they say, what happened? You know what's so funny? I don't remember. But the point was not remembering what happened. It was the encounter. 
that's what stuck in me. That's what remained in me. It's kind of interesting. People get, I think a lot of people get it. Now, contrition, as it's associated with confession, right? Confession, I did it. Contrition, I'm sorry. Forgive me, I'll make up for it. I'll never do it again. Those five sentences. The second sentence, contrition, shows up in confession as the act of contrition. Do you ever focus on what we say in the act of contrition? Oh my God, I'm heartily sorry for having offended thee. That's contrition, I'm sorry. And I detest, remember? Contrition is the detesting of our sins. Spiritual sorrow, heartily sorry. Sorry from my heart, from the core of my being. I'm heartily sorry for having offended thee. And I detest all my sins because, why? I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell. Attrition, servile fear. But most of all, because they've offended you, my God, and who are all good and is deserving of all my love. Sorrow rooted in love. Contrition. Attrition, fear of the consequences. Uh, contrition, fear rooted in love. That's what is called forth from us in confession. Now, how are these two linked? Attrition and contrition. You should know three things about attrition and contrition. The first thing to know is what links them together is humility. The second thing is this, is that attrition never becomes contrition. In other words, this is a very important point. If you begin with, I fear offending God because I don't want the ultimate consequences of sin, namely dying out of relationship with God and ending up in hell, that never becomes fear rooted in love. Fear rooted in the consequences never becomes contrition, fear rooted in love. These are two different sources. So they never, one never becomes the other. They're different types of fear. So if you're raising your children and you want to put the fear of God into them, make sure you also put the love of God into them so that they learn to say no to a sin, not simply because of the bad consequences, but they want to say yes because of the relationship. I think of a lot of chastity education, it's, it's fear-based in the sense of know the consequences of choosing wrong. And while that provides some protection, think of me pitching. The ultimate reason why I wanted to do well, I wanted to do what was right, wasn't because I was afraid of the negatives. That will only provide a certain level of hedge of defense. The real motivator that made me want to be faithful in doing what it was right and good for me was love. It was the relationship. Hold on to that. There's a lot there, a lot there that's worth reflecting on. And then, um, and then the third point, um, contrition is rooted in love. This gets connected to, to humility how? Humility, I talked about already last week, um, as lowering yourself before God. Aquinas actually defines humility as praiseworthy self-abasement. It's an interesting phrase. Safe self-abasement, putting yourself in the basement, <laughs> lowering yourself. But it's praiseworthy self-abasement. Why? We can abase ourselves, we can lower ourselves, but if we don't do it before God, in the light of God, in the light of God's majesty and his love, 
we're going to stay low. We're only going to think poorly of ourselves. We won't be lifted up by God, before God. Remember that? This was the, this is it, that if you lower yourself in a praiseworthy manner, namely, you do so in the light of God's love, in the light of God's presence, he will lift you up. So this awareness of God's majesty gets translated into humility as an attitude. Why? I see who God is. I see his beauty, his loving perfection, his infinite holiness, and I realize how I've failed him, and I fall before him out of love. I've let him down. That's praiseworthy self-abasement. Sin is detestable. But if we don't know the love that comes from our Father to reveal us, reveal to us the true source of detesting our sins, we're only going to end up in self-hatred and self-loathing and not living in the light of God's loving. You don't want to know a reason to loathe yourself apart from God's love because you'll just hate yourself. So this is why it's so fundamentally important for us to know true humility, praiseworthy self-abasement. We lower ourselves in a praiseworthy manner. He lifts us up. I'm sorry I've not been faithful to you as you've always been faithful to me. I'm sorry that I've not honored you as Lord in my life. Praiseworthy self-abasement. Now, there's a basic challenge that we face regarding humility. We resist it. We resist it. <laughs> we resist the very enlightenment that God wants to give us. Remember I talked about this new enlightenment, this new gift? We resist it. What's the opposite of humility? Pride, right? Pride. I've already talked about pride as lifting yourself up before God. Um, Aquinas brings out another aspect of pride. Pride, he says, is the beginning of sin. But he says that one, manifest, one manifestation of pride, this is a great one, you're going to love this. Pride manifests itself as clinging to my own judgment. Clinging to my own judgment. My own judgment, my own way of seeing things. When someone corrects you, when someone offers you a different perspective, how quickly are you to say, I am so wrong. Thank you for that enlightenment. I can't believe that I've labored in vain with this wrong thinking. You're right. Thank you. Please correct me more. I know how wrong I am. Or do I cling to my own judgment and resist correction? Resist the enlightenment. You're right. I'm completely off base in my thinking. I was wrong. How often do we welcome that kind of enlightenment to our judgment? I want to say it this way. I said, uh, if you're like me, the answer is probably never, rarely, or only as necessary. <laughs> now, um, the, you know, the, it's not bad to have confidence in your own reason, your own ability to judge things, if that's where you begin. Begin there, because God has given you reason and the ability to make judgments, and as you form your intellect, you should have confidence in your own reason's ability. As long as you begin there, don't end there. Don't end with, I'm convinced I'm right. When will you finally submit to my correctness? So, the problem's not the starting point, the problem's the ending point. So, are we resisting or are we open to be led and taught?
taught, all of a sudden now you're beginning to see some connections here. Wait a minute, what was the Holy Spirit trying to do? Move me? And in that covenant relationship in my heart, I'm supposed to yield? I resist yielding. I want to cling to my way of seeing things. Cling to my way of seeing things. Conversion in its ultimate meaning, metanoia in Greek, is the changing of a mindset, the changing of how I see. That's going to give rise to the right attitude. So humility is going to be a solution for pride that resists being open. Now, what is going to help us uh, overcome the resistance to being led? What's going to help us gain the humility that doesn't want to cling to my own judgment? Are you ready? Aquinas says it. It's another one of these things that we're not accustomed to thinking of. He calls it salutary shame. Salutary shame. What's salutary? Salutary comes from the root meaning salvation, to make whole, to heal, beneficial, life-giving. When you think of all of those adjectives, you don't think of describing shame. In our culture, shame is associated almost entirely with something negative. And let me just simply say, it often is negative. So I am not here to propose this idea that we should shame people. I'm not here to propose that if you're experiencing shame over what you've done, it's immediately should be understood and interpreted as something positive. But I am saying there's a, such a thing as salutary shame. There is a way for me to experience a sense of shame that will, in fact, bring light to my life. Now, Aquinas talks about the, uh, he talks about salutary shame as a sense of, uh, as a sense of disgust, as a sense of embarrassment or horror over what I've done. That's what shame is, right? I'm disgusted by what I've done. I'm embarrassed about it. I'm um, horrified by this misdeed. And, and salutary shame is the fruit of being loved by God. Remember, God's majesty is revealed, and I realize how miserable I am. That salutary shame shows up in the light of God's loving kindness to me. I can't believe I did that. I am sorry. Is not necessarily salutary shame, because that could be out of, I can't believe I did that, is about I broke a law. Do you remember how last week I talked about sin is personal? Sin is about the relationship. Remember about the covenant in the heart? Salutary shame is, I can't believe I did that to you. I can't believe I hurt you. I'm so ashamed of what I'm done. I'm disgusted by my own activity because I hurt you, not I did that. I did that is ending on the action rather than connecting the action to the relationship. This is why in the Old Testament, you know, one of the images of being unfaithful to God sinning was, it was the image of adultery. It was about uh, betraying the relationship, betraying the relationship. Now, listen to what contrition does. Sorrow that's rooted in love, sorrow that's rooted in this relationship, it leads to this disgust, this horror, because I realize 
that I've caused damage to the relationship. Now, hold on to that concept of adultery for a minute. Contrition says, true contrition, sorrow rooted in love, it replaces, it literally not only crushes the hardened heart, but it'll crush the very pleasure I took in the sin that I experienced when I was committing it. And it replaces it with disgust. Contrition, love. When I realize that I've hurt the relationship, it actually goes back and it replaces the sense of um, enjoyment with the sense of disgust. Think of the adulterer who got caught. You know, the guy's facing his wife, and what is he saying? You know, I'm now ashamed. What was something that maybe I found pleasure in in the moment of my betrayal now disgusts me. I'm horrified at what I've done. Why? Because I've I haven't terminated my thinking, my judgment in the action, but I'm relating the action to the relationship. Does that make sense? See, this is again why if we're going to grow in our sense of sorrow over our sins, the call of confession is to connect sins to the relationship always. It's personal. It's always personal. It's relational. So um, I, I might have told you this story before, but you know, eat fish during Lent. Um, fish stick Friday, right? So kids have the fish sticks, pass them all out. My kids love fish sticks. My oldest daughter, Mary Grace, um, got her share, got her two fish sticks, finished them, wanted another one, got a third one, and then wanted to grab another one. She grabbed the last one. As Anne Marie, so this would be, Mary Grace would have been eight, Anne Marie would have been six. Uh, Anne Marie said, I want another fish stick, there were none left. So Mary Grace had already claimed that fish stick and put it on her plate. So I said, what did I say to Mary Grace? I said, Mary Grace, you've already had another fish stick. So I said, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to cut it in half. All right. I'm going to cut it in half. And you know, you always try to cut it in perfect halves. No, it's impossible. The kids will always see a difference between them. So I cut it in half. And I said, Mary Grace, you get to have one half. Right. And I said, you can have either half that you want, either one, but I want you to have the half that will make Jesus smile. Give the half to your sister that is going to make Jesus smile. Well, talk about guilt, huh? Talk about shame. <laughs> so what does Mary Grace do? She sits there and she just looks at them. She's got this like look on her face. She pushes the bigger one off her plate and she snaps it over to her sister. She did the right thing. She didn't have the best attitude, but she did the right thing, right? So it was a relational thing. Here's what you're being asked to do. Do what is going to make Jesus smile. I'm connecting the action, not simply to do what's right, but do what's going to make Jesus smile. It's, it, an eight-year-old gets it. The Acts, uh, Acts of the Apostles, I think it's chapter 4, talks about life-giving repentance. Life-giving repentance. This true penitence, this true sorrow for our sins that turns us back into the relationship, turns us back to God. That's life-giving. Aquinas does talk about oppressive sorrow. What's oppressive sorrow? It's the sorrow that we would have over a condition in our lives, maybe a sin. And he, he identifies it have, as having three effects. If you want to know if there's a sorrow in your life that is not associated with salutary shame, here are the three effects of sorrow. 
Sorrow weighs you down. It, it, the word he uses, interestingly, is it depresses. And I'm not saying everyone who's depressed is weighed down by sin, but I am saying that sorrow, the, the sorrow over the condition of my life depresses. It weighs me down. Secondly, it constricts my vision. It constricts my whole perspective on my life. And when we're caught up in a condition, a situation that we're not proud of, a condition that is not honoring to God, we can get caught up in this condition that constricts and it consumes. We get all caught up. You ever talk to someone who they just can't stop talking about their condition? Their whole lives have been constricted down and they're consumed by it and they're weighed down by it. This oppressive sorrow is a condition where I see the condition I want to be in. I see the good that I want for my life, but I'm stuck in this spot. I'm weighed down, I'm constricted, I'm consumed. And literally, the attempt to move towards the good that I want increases the very resistance in me towards movement. Did you ever? That's someone who's stuck. They're so stuck that the very attempt to move towards the good ratchets up the very resistance towards moving at all. You ever felt that? Have you ever know someone who's experienced it? That is someone who is without hope. It's hope that says the good that I want for my life, the good condition I want to be in, is something that I can, I can walk to. It's a place where I can get to. A person without hope says, I can't make it to that place that frees me from this condition. You ever wonder why people will choose to stay in painful situations because they're known rather than going into a better situation because it's unknown? Why do you stay there? Why do you stay, continue to do that? It's what they know. They can't even imagine walking that path to get them to that new condition, that new place. They're stuck in oppressive sorrow. Let me, let, me, let me contrast that with life-giving sorrow. The prodigal son, he's in a pretty bad spot. Remember, he's in the pigsty. He's in, a, he's in a pigsty of his own making. Totally his fault. But what does he have that the person who is stuck doesn't have? He has the awareness, the gift given to him, the enlightenment that he has a father. He has a father who awaits him. And that father who awaits him, the relationship is enough to pull him out of the pigsty, to pull him out of that stuck place that he has done, to pull him out of it and to get him home. What is it that's going to turn someone who is feeling a sense of shame and disgust at their own behaviors that they deserve into a kind of sorrow that's life-giving? Let me say it this way. Prodigal son makes it to his father, throws his arms around his father. What is he experiencing at that moment? Is he experiencing sorrow or joy? The answer is yes. Aquinas says the fruit of life-giving sorrow is joy. The fruit of life-giving sorrow is joy. Why? It's relational. I'm sorry that I hurt you. And yet you welcome me home. You give me a fresh start and a new beginning. I rejoice. 
I am filled with joy. Repentance has as its fruit joy, life-giving repentance. And so, all I can say is this. Because we are marked as people who live in a drama, and the drama is, am I going to yield or not to the Holy Spirit in my life, which is going to lead me to a hardened heart or not, and the hardened heart is going to lead me to spiritual pain that I have a decision to either mask or ignore or attempt to crush, or I can try to crush it. And in crushing it, there's one way to crush it, and that's in the relationship of love. But the only way to come to know that love is by being enlightened. And God's love is going to enlighten me to who He really is and how faithful He is and how holy He is. And then I realize how unfaithful I am. That's going to lead me to a salutary shame. You see how all this flows together? We don't get this right. We're going to get stuck. Why? Because we do sin. We do fail God. And we might just end up stuck in a kind of shame and an oppressive sorrow. How many Catholics are stuck? Oh my gosh. How many people are stuck? Oh my goodness. That's why we got to understand confession. We got to get this right. We got to understand how to say I'm sorry, rooted in love. Well, how do we grow in contrition? How do we grow in our ability to feel truly sorry for what we've done, right? Um, and it, again, remember I talked about it's the awareness that leads to the attitude, which leads to the actions, right? And, and let me just say that there are ways of saying I'm sorry without really meaning it. I think I might have brought some of these up last week, right? Um, you say I did it, uh, and then you say I'm sorry. Think of the politician who's like, meeting with the, the PR people. It's like, okay, so I need to say I'm sorry here for what I've done. If I'm gonna get elected next time, great. I'm so sorry for what I've done, right? And then the tearful wife in the background and I'm standing with my husband and you know all these whatevers, right? But these aren't really acts of sorrow. These are calculated acts that are meant to get some kind of effect, right? Then there's the I'm sorry that it's just the spontaneous blurt out that is the fear of the consequences, right? This happens at least two or three times a week at my house. You know, uh, you know, Mary Grace was cleaning the table a couple months ago and um, she, she wasn't really paying attention and doing it the way she should have, but she was doing her job and she dropped something and it broke. And, it, and before it even hit the floor, it's, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And it's, are you really sorry? <laughs> or is it just, oh my goodness, I made a mistake. I realized that I maybe should have been a little more attentive and careful and I wasn't. Is she really sorry? Well, she's sorry it happened. <laughs> and she's fearful of the consequences. Uh, and maybe there's a little bit of real sorrow in there too, but it's, it's not really considered, right? Uh, then there's the, uh, I'm sorry that you were hurt, right? Not, I'm sorry I did that. Or, I'm sorry that it happened. Somehow the world had fallen on your head. I didn't actually do anything. So I'm not taking uh, any kind of personal agency or responsibility for my action. So these are ways of saying I'm sorry uh, for what happened rather than what I did. It's not true, authentic sorrow. Well, how do we say I'm sorry authentically? How do we say it authentically? Let me say it this way. Know yourself. Know yourself. And by that, I mean two or three things. The first thing I mean is this. We all have different personalities. Certain kind of personalities tend towards the emotional. And there are certain kinds of personalities that are more reserved. Personal history shapes how you approach things. There are people that are much more practical. There are people that are a little bit more emotional and dramatic. You know what I mean? No, need, no names needed. We all know what we're talking about, right? Now, 
Well, if that's true, guess what? Some of us are going to more naturally express the awareness of who I am in the light of God and the attitude of humility that gives birth to I'm sorry in very emotional ways. Very emotional ways, just because of personal history. Because of personal history and because, so I say there are three factors, personal history, personal temperament, and culture. Kind of, you know, uh, the, 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 the cultural group that you belong to. I'm Italian, all right? Very expressive, right? Uh, I'm Irish as well. This is combustible, all right? <laughs> Irish and Italian, right? Very expressive. Um, my wife has a German background. Less expressive, okay? So just to say that you're going to find that because of your personal history, the things that have happened to you in your life, the things that you've done, personal temperament, your whole approach to life, and your own culture are going to lead you to more naturally be inclined towards certain expressions of contrition. So I'm not saying that you have to be on your knees and beating your breast and saying, I'm so sorry I did it with tears in your eyes, unless that is something that will flow out of you. All right? So know yourself and be comfortable with expressing contrition in a way that is suited to your history, your temperament, and your own cultural background. But there are ways to grow in contrition. I'm going to give you four. Four ways to grow in contrition. The first is prayer. Makes great sense, but let me tell you why and how specifically to pray. Sorrow rooted in love. Love, caritas, is a theological virtue. It's called an infused virtue, which means it is a gift from God. How do you receive a gift? By being open to receive it and asking for it. Do you want to grow in contrition? I mean this utterly sincerely. If you want to grow in contrition, take some time in prayer and say, Lord, please love me. Did you hear that? Please pour your love into my heart. Pour your love into the depths of my being. Why? When you've received the love of God, it will give rise in you to a love for God. And the more profound and intimate that love relationship with God is, the more that this sense of God's fidelity and when I fail to honor that fidelity, my own sense of sorrow will be the way that love manifests itself in that relationship. So please ask the Lord to love you. And that means give him time and space to do that. I propose Eucharistic adoration. He's there, present in that glorified form. Ask him to reveal his majesty. Ask him to enlighten you of, of the mystery of his holiness and ask him just to pour his love out upon you. Just be there. Just be there to take it in. Second, contemplate Christ crucified. Remember, one of my big points in this book is that Jesus Christ crucified is both a confession of the sins of the world and of the love of God. And St. Uh, Augustine, uh, built a principle in our spiritual life that said this, I become what I contemplate. I become what I contemplate. What I make the primary object of my attention and concern, what I gaze upon in love, when I hold in my mind and think about, when I use the powers of my own intellect to imagine and, and to, to think about and reflect upon, shapes me. Let, me. let me say it to you this way. Any of you ever have a child who is in maybe a dangerous situation, maybe sick or out of your protection or out of your own reach in terms of not knowing where they are? 
You ever find yourself thinking about them, holding them in your mind, considering them constantly? Guess what? It shows up. I become what I contemplate. I become a throbbing concern for my child. The same is true in our own spiritual lives. If we hold in our minds Christ crucified, literally, carry a crucifix with you. Carry a rosary. Hold on to that crucifix. Have images of Christ crucified. Have crucifixes literally around your house. Go and pray in front of the crucifix. Why? You'll gain insight into what he did for me and what I did to him. You'll gain insight into a confession of his love and a confession of my sins. We talked about how personal sin is, right? Not only can Christ impact me, but I impact him. How? Through my sins, I affect that. I affect what happened to Jesus on the cross. Today, I affect what happened 2,000 years ago. Third, prayerfully read scripture. Not just pray and ask the Lord to love you, but read the penitential Psalms or the Psalms of Confession. Psalm 51 is, a, is, a, is a, probably the most famous one. Uh, but Psalm 6, 32, 38, 102, 130, 143. These are the, these are the Psalms. These are the prayers. I, I have the list for afterwards if you want it. These are the Psalms of a contrite soul praying to God. Now, why is that so important? Do you remember I become what I contemplate? Well, God's word is a living word. And when you take in God's word, when you feed on God's word, it's like seeds being planted in your soul. Now, you might read one of these Psalms and it says, oh God, I'm so sorry for my sins. I am, not, I am dust and ashes. I lay myself before you. And you're like, no, I don't. It doesn't live in me. It's not me. I'm not, I don't feel that. Well, as you welcome God's word in, you will literally be transformed by his word into that word. That word will begin to not only be, take root in your life, it'll begin to manifest in your life. So read his word, take in his word, and become his word. The word will become flesh in your life. Trust me. And then lastly, act as if you're contrite. Why? Uh, habits grow by acting your way into being, right? I've talked about being your way into acting. As you're aware of something, it gives rise to the attitude, which gives rise to the action. Well, it also works in the other way, but it's based on a gift. So it's not exactly the same. In other words, act as if you're sorry. And what you're ending up doing is you're disposing yourself. You're readying yourself. You're preparing yourself to receive the gift of contrition. So by saying to the Lord, this is not a verbal uh, manipulation or a trick. Lord, I am sorry, but I am so sorry that I am not more truly sorry for my sins. Does that cause God to give you the gift of contrition? No. Does it ready you to receive what God is waiting to give? Yes. Do you get the difference? Acting your way into being is not causing God to give a gift, but it's clearing the blockages and it's disposing you to receive what he's ready to give. It's kind of like saying, clean your room and you get dessert. Does cleaning the kid's room cause you to give them dessert? No. They're being disposed to receive what you were willing to give as a gift. That's what I'm saying when I say, 
act as if you are contrite. 